right, good morning. Is Treehouse happening? They know it already. If you are K through 5, as the slide says, you can line up in the back with Miss Carmen and they're off already. Okay, didn't even say a word. They're all about it. Well, good morning, everybody. You like that extra bit of oomph that I'm bringing this morning to you? I'm not sure what's happening, but we'll figure it out. How are you guys? That good, huh? Excellent. Okay. I'm great. Thank you, Julie, for asking. Um, I always like to gauge kind of up front what kind of morning it's going to be. So depending on how how much I have to work to um, convey the message that the Lord has brought this morning. And so if you haven't been with us, we've been going through uh, the gospel according to John. We've made our way through uh, a good portion of it. And we know that we are in the middle of this section called, what is this section called that we're in right now? What is it? The thing? We're all relying on you. Because nobody else remembers. Farewell discourse. Great job. That's my wife, everybody. We're in the middle of, of, actually the beginning, I should say, of Jesus' farewell discourse. You remember I talked about how this is sort of a pattern in Scripture, how there's things that... Uh, We can look back to with characters and people from the Bible that on the eve or near the eve of their departure, they would gather the people around them that were important to them and kind of give them some encouragement and direction for what they would do after they left. Is this sounding familiar at all? Remember there was some encouragement also that they would send sort of a replacement. They would give them marching orders. Any of that ringing a bell? Okay. Um, Not a big deal. You know, it's all good. Don't, don't worry, don't fret. When we look at our passage this morning, I think you're going to look at it and go, it's just kind of like a narrative. It's just, this is telling us what's happening. And, and you'd be semi-correct. A lot of the Gospels are narrative. It's, it's descriptive of things that are happening. But I would argue that there's a lot more else, a lot else, a lot other things a happening. A whole lot more, thank you. <laughs> a larger theme, if you will, um, for us to discover. And so um, I'm going to read our text this morning. I'll read the whole thing. It's not super long, but, but pay close attention because there may be some, some questions coming for us. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me in John 13. It will be on the screen as well, but John 13 is where we are. We hit the whole first half last week. This is really sort of the second half of the introduction to this farewell discourse that is going to span the next five chapters. John chapter 13, we're going to begin in verse 21. And this is what our text is this morning. It says, After these things Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of Jesus whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So then, when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas 
the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Lord, again, we pause this morning, grateful for your love, grateful for the relationship that we have through Jesus Christ. Father, we are so, we're blessed, Lord God. We are left to our own devices and left in our sin, longing dying on a path of destruction, Lord God. But, but Jesus, Lord, you saved, you redeemed. In the story that we're reading right now, Lord, in, in this account that you have given us through your disciple, John, given through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but for us, God, we can see your faithful plan unfolding before our eyes. We can see, Lord, that you had us in mind as you were walking through this journey on this earth. And God, we want to know what it is that you have for us this morning through your word. Your word is living, it's breathing, it's life for us, it's transformative. So show us, Lord, today, right now, your word still has meaning, it still has purpose we want to do all that we can to glean from that for our good and for your glory. So we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. If you have questions, my friends, you can text them to that number on the screen. Uh, Mark and I will come up at the end of service and we'll uh, seek to answer those questions for you. But I want to ask, remember I told you to pay attention as we were reading through those 18 verses. As we just read those 18 verses together... If someone asked you, what would you say is the overarching theme? If you were to put like a thesis statement or some sort of summary statement describing sort of the content of these 18 verses, what would you say that is? And before you answer, I'll give you a hint. It's in the red letters. It's something that Jesus said. So go ahead, lay it on me. What, what, what do we got? What is this about? Loving your neighbors, okay? What else we got? I'm not saying that's wrong, but what? Loving yourself. Loving yourself. They will know we are Christians by our love. They will know that we are Christians by our love. Okay, okay. 
Why do I ask this? Because it's important. This is a skill that we should all have. When we read the scriptures, part of us should be focusing on why is this here? What is the intention of this? What is it doing for me? And so if you don't generally look at scripture like that, I would encourage you to start doing that. What is the main theme here? What is the purpose? And our goal here as we're preaching through these passages is to make the the point of the passage, the point of the text. That, that should be our goal here. And hopefully you, you see that. So looking to the Word of God with intentionality and a desire. You, you need to have that desire to know and understand why the words are in front of us today. So I think we, we got from the crowd the general idea of this. Today's message is going to you know, kind of rally around the idea of love. So keep that in mind as we're walking through this. But Scripture is is so complex. There's so many different levels to it. There's a lot of other things going on here. So while we have this overarching theme of love happening, we're going to see some other things along the way, and that's what I'm going to help us unpack, hopefully, this morning. So we read last week in the opening section of chapter 13 that one of the 12 was going to betray Jesus, right? And we know... From this text this morning, we affirm who that person is. So who's the one of the twelve that's going to betray Jesus? It's Judas, right? Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. And so before we dig into this, because I think a lot of times when we remove ourselves from Scripture, it's easy to kind of point fingers and be like, oh, you guys were with Jesus. You, you were right there. How could you not see what was going on? And we talk about the Israelites, you know, constantly turning their back on God, and yet... All of us are guilty of that in our own way, probably more often than we care to admit. So I want to just pause right here before we start kind of nitpicking on the disciples. I want to read something to you. This is a letter to Jesus, son of Joseph. That's the woodcrafter's carpenter shop in Nazareth. This is from the Jordan Management Consultants. Okay? (laughs) Dear sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for managerial positions in your new organization. All of them have now been through our battery of tests, and we have not only run our results through our computer, but have arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. It is the staff's opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a skeptical attitude that would tend to undermine morale. Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, definitely have radical leanings and they both registered a high score on the manic depressive scale. (laughs) One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He is a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contacts in high places. He's highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. We wish you every success in your new venture. Sincerely, the Jordan Management That's real. (laughs) It's not real at all. However, 
I think there's great value in reading something like that before we jump into this particular thing. There's, there's a great danger in assessing your ability based on outward appearance and worldly standards. I read that for all of us who have doubts in whether or not what we're doing and who we are can be of use and of service to the Lord. How many have questioned that in your own life? Like, how could God actually use me? Do not let the world disqualify you from the work that the Lord has called you to do. It's very easy even to disqualify yourself. Do not do it. While this is done in jest, sort of, that's, that's reality, right? These people that Jesus chose were just that. They were not in any way spectacular. And yet Jesus, through them, did spectacular things. Jesus doesn't usually call the equipped, but he always equips the called. And if you're here this morning and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are the called and you have a purpose. So do not let you, yourself or anyone else of the world disqualify you to do what God has called you to do. So as this story is unfolding then before us, we get a little bit of a, a glimpse into the group dynamics that's happening. And I'm gonna, again, I'm going to advocate for you guys watching The Chosen because it, it helps things like this come to life. These are real human beings, real people that are doing things that you and I would probably do. So in the middle of this pronouncement of somebody betraying Jesus, there's this little interchange Right? Just a little bit happening between a couple of the disciples and their responses. They're concerned. We read that in the opening verses here. There's an uncertainty. Like, what? who's he talking about? Who's going to betray this guy? And in verse 23, it says, The disciple whom Jesus loved, which is probably who? It's probably John. You know, I like that he refers to himself throughout this as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John, the one who's writing this. It says he's leaning close into Jesus. Some translations say that he's on Jesus' chest, which would not be abnormal. They're around a table, like mostly around the table, leaning on one of their sides, on their left side, so they can eat with their right hand. So Jesus and John would have been in very close proximity. And as he says this, this little exchange happens. So let's just pretend like I'm Simon Peter and... Mike back there is John. So John back there, he's leaning against Jesus. And we see in this verse, one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Simon Peter motioned to ask Jesus who he was talking about. So in my mind, I'm thinking I'm Simon Peter. So Jesus says this thing. And I look over and I make eye contact with John. Because we, we, we're tight, right? And I'm like, ask him. Ask him who he's talking about. Like there's this connection happening. Nobody else is really paying attention, but we have this thing going on. And so what does John do? He leans into Jesus and goes, who is it? Who are you, who are you talking about? Now, does that have anything to do with like the, the reality of what's happening? I mean, yeah, kind of. But this just, these are people. These are human beings. Like wouldn't me and Mike do that? Be like, hey dude, ask Brian. Like he knows what's going on. Ask him. Do it. And you can just see Peter just kind of like, emphatically going, ask him. And so he does, and I love it. And he gives an answer. 
the one whom I give this morsel to is going to be that person. So the fact that we see these sort of human qualities in this passage, I think it's, it's helpful to overlay on this particular scene. So, why does that matter? I, I just think if we see that these are regular people, it sort of removes maybe some of the obstacles that we have in thinking that we can be used in that degree as well. Right? We remove any sort of unrealistic hurdles that may be there to say, I want to be like that. I want to be found faithful like that. And I'll say it again. These are not extraordinary people by any means, especially according to the Jordan Business Consultant Management people. Average, everyday people like many of us. But again, through the work of Christ in them, did extraordinary things. So Jesus reveals his identity of this guy, verses 26 through 27, tells us that it's going to be Judas. And after he ate the bread that Jesus had dipped in the cup, something happened. Jesus, or Satan rather, entered into him. So last week, you remember that Satan had implanted this thought of, of rebellion and betrayal. Now we see, as it's about to happen, Satan entering into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. And now some people have spent a lot of time and a lot of energy trying to, to figure out exactly what this means. But keeping the main thing the main thing, which is usually our goal, I agree with this gentleman named Professor Borchert. He says, Whatever Jesus offered him, Judas was hardly a puppet, and the dipped morsel was hardly a magical potion. Satan did not need magic to enter Judas. All he needed was permission to take control. And that permission was given by Judas and confirmed by Jesus with the words, do quickly what you're about to do. So we're not going to get it deep into, like, how, how does this play out? Was this a part of Jesus' plan? Did, did he allow Satan? Did he direct Satan? Like, all we need to know is that when we're talking about real-life things and temptations— a willing spirit is often all that's ever needed on both sides of the coin. A willing spirit. Hi, Audrey. Hello. Two things I want to note about Judas and his example to us. Both are going to become in a form of a warning. One is a personal warning to you, and one is a corporate warning to all of us. Got it? First, and this is heartbreaking, Judas was so close to salvation and yet was lost forever. Right? He was right there in, in the mix of all of it. Couldn't get any closer to the source of salvation and yet was lost forever. For every person, every person, hear me now, proximity to the gospel does not save you. It does not. Proximity to believers does not save you. It cannot. It will not. Now, I realize that a lot of people understand this concept. But there are maybe, perhaps some here today that believe they are one of God's chosen because their nearness to spiritual things facilitates that kind of relationship. 
Because you're here today, that means you're a Christian. That means you're God's, you're in. You're in the club, so to speak. When in reality, they're on the outside looking in. I think that's one of the most dangerous places that we can be, is thinking that we're good, thinking that we're in because of our proximity and our participation and all these things, when in reality, we're just like Judas. We're so close, yet lost. So my prayer for for all of us, and for you who maybe are just considering the things of Christianity, why you believe you are among the people of God. What makes you qualified to be counted among his people? And the only acceptable answer is you receiving Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior through the work on the cross and his death in your place. That's it. That's the only acceptable answer. Right? We don't earn our way into status with Christ. It does not work that way. So that's a personal warning. We can be real close and yet so far. And then there's this corporate warning. Judas represents disbelief, not from the outside, but where? From inside, from in and among the people. He was right there among everybody else. So this is a corporate warning to us as a church. The Bible tells us that there are people whose intention is to infiltrate the body of Christ just to create disunity, all kinds of problems, issues. That's their whole point. They enter in trying to be a sheep among the sheep, where in reality, what are they? They're wolves in sheep's clothing. The Bible tells us that. This is one of the reasons, my friends, that we place a high, high emphasis on membership and that we have a a fairly extensive membership process. You've heard us say it before and we'll continue to say it. This is not like family. This is family. The the, the church is family. We're just not going to throw the doors open and say, hey, anybody wants to come in and be a member of the church, come on in. Yeah, if you want to come on a Sunday and and be with us, absolutely, everybody is welcome. But membership, being a part of this family, we have an obligation, all of us, to protect the family. And so, yeah, we're going to want to hear your testimony. We're going to hear about how Christ saved you. We're going to hear about what he's done in your life, your testimony, your, your baptism. To help keep those at bay that would want to come in under false pretenses. You see see what I'm getting at here? So there are people like Judas on the inside, so to speak, whose purpose is to stir up strife and disunity. And we need to be on the lookout for those things. So this is a corporate warning. Well, Jesus, he tells Judas to go and do what he's going to do quickly, right? Just go, go and do it quickly. And things are set in motion for his impending arrest, his crucifixion, and his death. That, that's exactly what he says, is just go and do it quickly, because I already know what's happening. It's coming. But did you notice that the disciples are still unclear? They're like, what's happening? Even after, you know, they have this little thing going on. And what I think, the reason why they're still confused is because this Peter-John thing wasn't a public conversation. It was between Peter and John, who were like, who is he talking about? And then Jesus tells John. People around the table didn't weren't a, a part of that conversation, so they're still like, What's Judas going? Is he going to buy food? Is he going to give some alms to the poor? Like, what's happening? So they're still kind of in question of what's what's going on. Regardless, Judas leaves. 
And I want you to look down at verse 30. Look at the end of verse 30. What does it say specifically when he leaves what is happening? It's what? It was night. Now that's not just a descriptor of the evening time, which it is, but it's a perfect picture of what Judas is going out into. The darkness of the world. He is not in the light of Christ. He is in darkness. Then as he's going out, Jesus offers in verses 31 to 32 a description of something that can be a little bit difficult for us to grasp, I think. I'm going to spend a lot of time here uh, because I think the point of this whole section here, of verses 31 and 32, is that God being glorified is the whole goal in all of this. This is the part I'm talking about. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and glorified is God, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Makes perfect sense, right? You're like, what is happening right now? Okay, I think this is an example of how intricately involved the Trinity is and how each one is glorified in the other. You can't separate it out. If the Father is glorified, the Son is glorified. The purpose and goal of the Son is to glorify the Father. And the Father, it's, you see, you can't separate it apart. This is us trying to put into words something that is beyond human understanding. right? But the goal, the ultimate thing is what? That God would be glorified. And it's going to happen through this process. So if you take nothing away, just you know, kind of let that kind of bake on this week and, and, and maybe you'll come up with something a little bit more deep than that. But I think that's the whole point of this. Is like we can't fully understand it, but know that God's goal in this is to be glorified. And so our goal should be what? To glorify God as well. Like that's, that's our whole point is to bring glory and honor to God. Now, I don't think it's any coincidence here that these events of Judas's betrayal and you know the, the prediction of all that and him leaving out is immediately followed by this command to do what? To love. I don't think that's coincidence at all. Jesus is about to be betrayed, as we read earlier, right? And he's soon going to be denied by someone close to him, and yet sandwiched in between these two things is a command to love. You see what you see what the writer's doing here? <laughs> You're going to be betrayed by people who you think should love you. You're going to be denied. Jesus' example and command to us? Love. Love them anyway. You think you think it was hurtful to Jesus that people in his inner circle we're denying him? I can't imagine, right? That's got, that's got a sting. Remember I said at the beginning that the passage, really, the theme, the heart, is love in all of this. And Jesus now is said here to be giving a new commandment to love one another. Now how many, when I read that, or just said it just now, a little light bulb went off in your head, and it's like, a new commandment I give you to love. Anybody question that in their mind? 
Is it a new commandment to love? Is this like the first time that Jesus has ever talked about love? Or the scriptures have ever said to love people? So why is it new? It's not new. It goes all the way back to what we've been talking about weeks ago in Deuteronomy chapter 6. The greatest commandment is to what? Love God and love others. It's not new. So what is he getting at here? Well, I think in verse 34, there's a qualifier for us. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Okay, that's a little different now. Just as I have loved you, you also love one another. There's a a very specific source and motive of the kind of love that we should have for other people, right? And we're talking about other believers. I think Audrey said that. Our love for other Christians will show us, show the world around us that we're believers. How many of you, if we're being honest, know or have experienced life with other believers and they have been very difficult to love? Okay, if you haven't raised your hand, then you will raise your hand at some point in your life because for whatever reason, it can be challenging, perhaps even more challenging to love believers than non-believers. Now, I'll give you an example. We were at a church in Hawaii, and we were on the worship team. Now, there was two worship teams, which in itself was a problem. There was a lot of unhealth in this church, but God had us there for whatever reason. And there was a piano player on the one worship team. By the way, Christy and I were on both worship teams, which made things extremely complicated. But there's a piano player, a decent piano player, but something about him was just, you just couldn't place your finger on it that was just it was off. Yeah, it was like, I, I want to believe that you're a brother in Christ, but the way that you're talking about people, the way that you're doing things, yet God would not release us. We tried to just be on the one team. We're like, you guys do your thing. We'll be over here. And it was like, nope, you will be on both teams. And we, I will say, we suffered through a season of trying to love him. And there were others on the team that were kind of in that same category. And we're just shaking our head going, why, Lord? Why do you have us here? But I will tell you, we have not grown more in our ability to love difficult people than in that season. And that's not a brag on us. That's, that's the Holy Spirit working through us because I wanted to drop kick some people. <laughs> I'm serious. It got to the point where it was out of control, unhealthy, like let's leave and never come back kind of thing. But God's grace was just like, no, I've got you. And there's a purpose in this. So if you haven't had the privilege of working through some difficulty with other believers, you will. And the scriptures even tell us what credit is to you if you love somebody who's lovable. Even the non-believers do that. What about the difficult people? Let's see you do that. Did we do it perfectly? Absolutely not. And you probably have experienced some failure in that area. How, how can we fail in loving difficult people in, in our communities? What are some ways you think that we can fail? Some reasons, I should say, for our failure in loving other people. Pride, judgment, bad heart, bad attitude, selfishness, doing it in our own strength. Ignoring them, just saying, hopefully it'll go away. Listen, my friends, if we manufacture anything in God's economy, we will fall short. 
Like we try to, to just collect all these things together and do it on our own. That will not ever bear the kind of fruit that you want. It just won't. Forced love? You see right through that. Right? Obligatory love? I have to love you because you're a Christian. Yeah, that's going to really win them over. Right? Um, faithless prayers? Selfish giving? All these kinds of things again, at the end of the day, are not going to bear the kind of fruit that you desire because you're manufacturing things. And in God's economy, as I said, it might as well be a sign up. We, we, we refuse the right to serve anybody. And if you're trying to bring in this outside resources, it's a waste. It's a waste, actually, of resources and energy to try to do it on your own. So don't. But Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, knew that we would need an example. And that's exactly what he did. He gave us an example of this specific kind of love. So how did Jesus express his love for us? I'll give you two words. Selflessly and sacrificially. So when we're looking for an example of how to do this today, you and me, in real time, loving other people, sacrificially and selflessly. Jesus loved at great cost to himself. Did he not? And I'm not just talking about the cross. That's the ultimate example, of course. But it was difficult and painful for him to love people. Again, I, I, I mentioned it earlier, but I want to bring it back into view here. It probably hurt more than we know for Jesus to be betrayed the way he was. And denied by, by Peter, the one who was among the closest to him, to say, I, don't, I never even knew him. That must have crushed him. But this did not keep Jesus, did it, from expressing this kind of love. It didn't. He was like, oh, you want to deny me? Fine. You're gone. You're out. That's not the example that we have. Like Jerry said, ignore him. No, Jesus didn't ignore him. He let Judas remain in the group all the way up until the very end. He even let him participate in communion, the very first Lord's Supper. Right? He fed it to him. He didn't have to do that. As we'll read, and maybe you've read another gospel accounts, after Peter denies Jesus three times, Peter gives him an opportunity to redeem that around the fire after Jesus had risen from the dead. I just love that. His love is sacrificial. And will, by definition, cost you something. That's what sacrifice is. It means it costs you something. Of course, as I said, we know that Jesus' ultimate example is in the cross and that kind of sacrificial love. But for you, maybe it's, it looks a little different. Maybe it's self-denial. Maybe it's... Um, Patience with a difficult brother or sister. Maybe it's it's loving through the pain caused by the one that you're trying to love. How about that? Loving through the pain that was caused by the person that is causing you pain. That is sacrificial, selfless love. It sets aside preference, comfort level, personal desire, all the things that we in our flesh want. We want comfort. We want things our own way. We want our preferences to be met. 
The kind of love that Jesus calls us to takes none of that into an account. And while this, this love that we're talking about is for and among other believers, man, it can be difficult to walk this out. It really can. That's why living in community is so valuable. That's why we talk about doing life together. Getting to know the family that God has brought you into. Because you begin to understand that they're human beings just like you. They have struggles. And when you know what their struggles are, you know what their life circumstances have brought them through, how many understand it's easier to love somebody when you understand what they've gone through? And maybe there's even things that they struggle with that you can relate to. And it helps you to love them more sacrificially and selflessly when you're in community together. Because what is at stake here is significant. The purpose that Jesus highlights for all of this, he says, we're doing this so that by this, what? All people will know that you're my disciples. If you have love for one another. Do you want to be known as a disciple of Jesus? Yes. Do you want others to know that even they, in all of their mess and brokenness, can be loved? Yes. Wouldn't that be wonderful if people walked in here that were broken and, and just completely doubt on themselves and their life circumstances, experiences have, have caused them to think that they are unworthy of any kind of love and they see the love that we have for another and they're like, I think I can be loved here. I want to come to that. I want to be a part of that. That testimony, my friends, is irreplaceable. It's incredible and it's a privilege that we have as a community to participate in. And my friends, I've got to commend us, commend you as a church you love well. You do. I hear people all the time when they're leaving or, or been at other churches and go like, man, I just felt welcomed and loved and received and encouraged. We do that well, my friends. But, but don't stop making that the goal. Like, don't just settle like, oh, yeah, we're good. We got it. We're not good. We don't got it. <laughs> all right? Just keep striving to love others as we ourselves have been loved by Jesus. All right, let's wrap this up. you got to love Peter's response here. He wants to know why he can't go. Jesus, why can't I just go with you where you're going? And again, Jesus in his mercy is like, look, you can't go right now, but what does he say? Soon you'll be able to come, and that's not good enough. I want to come with you. I would die for you, Jesus Really, Peter? Jesus says, you, you die for me? You're going to deny me three times before this day is over. Three times you are going to deny me. Man. But to be willing to lay down your life for Jesus, that's not something to be taken lightly, is it? Think about that. Giving your life for Jesus. That's not something that you should take lightly. And I think Peter, in this moment, genuinely meant what he said. But I don't think he understood fully the reality of what it would mean for him. Because at the end of the day, history tells us that Peter did give his life for the Lord, didn't he? 
How did Jesus? How did Peter die? Was he crucified? How was he crucified? According to church history and tradition, when he was to be crucified, Peter said, I'm not worthy of being crucified like my Savior. Crucify me upside down. What? Are you, are you kidding me? What kind of love and understanding of who Jesus is motivates that kind of behavior? Well, in this moment, we can see Peter still has some growing to do, doesn't he? He's like, I'll die for you, Jesus. Well, he's going to deny him three times. So, so he's on a journey. Eventually, we see Peter just being this rock star preacher with no training, no equipping, no education. But in this moment, we see a younger Peter, a less mature Peter on a journey. That's all of us. And we should take incredible encouragement from that. We're all on that same journey, maturing, growing, but love has got to be our motivation, our desire to bring glory to God through our love for others. That's the bottom line. And that's, that's what I think we ought to take away this morning. You know, we are on this path of, of, of doing life differently as church members, of hearing and obeying, of, of coming to a passage of scripture like this and going, all right, Lord, what do I do right now with this? How do I practically express this kind of love this week? And while this passage does talk about love for other believers, that's not the limit of love, as we know. Love your neighbor as yourself, and who is your neighbor? It's everybody around you, right? So this love across the board is for all people. So let me just pause this, this morning again. I want to leave space for people to be able to give glory to God in ways that perhaps he used you and your obedience to the word of God in ways that would bring him glory. Does anybody have a testimony or an example of how God has used you this week to grow you, to mature you, and to bring glory to him? And by the way, I'm going to keep asking this question as we go, because I think it's extremely important. And if nobody has anything this week, that's fine. But I want to reread. We got something you got something. All right, let's do it. Hi, church family. My name is Jerry. This is my wife, Audrey. And... Uh, <laughs> My parents are in their 80s. I'm kind of dating myself, but we're getting older. They can take care of themselves. And my mom fell, <clears throat> broke her hip. She ended up in the hospital, but she's a diabetic. So my dad thought he could take care of her at the house, and it's been a debacle ever since. So <clears throat> I got my prayer warrior here. We went down and visited my dad when we were there. The phone calls were coming in, and we could realize that he he was out of it. So we were able to pray with my dad, which, you know, I was raised old Roman Catholic. I was in a cult, and um, to see that happen was, was like a miracle. 
And then we prayed over my mom in the hospital. And uh, God's timing is always divine, but it's it's really awesome to um, learn the stuff that we you know we preach all the time and then go live it out. And uh, that was an opportunity that we had, maybe injected through the sermons that we've been lately because of his timing. And it was really nice to see my dad receive uh, prayer because when I was growing up, I had a really good memory being a Catholic. I can rip off prayers you wouldn't believe. But when I read the Bible and found out, they, they, they're like rags to Jesus. It's your heart. Like uh, with my man here this morning, this doesn't have to be supernatural. You just speak from your heart. And I'm going to pass the mic to my prayer warrior here. It, it really was just amazing to see him. Like he welcomed it and he didn't push us away. And it was the first time we had ever prayed for him or with him. So it really was amazing. Um, and then, so we also had, so this was Thursday. And we had already planned to have a community movie night on Friday night at our house. So we were thinking, oh man, this is just the enemy's way of trying to stop all of this from happening. So, but you know, praise God, he worked it all out and everything was, his, his mom was good, his dad was good. And so Friday night, Luke and I had already passed out flyers on Monday to just our street, you know, just start small. And people were coming over and they brought treats and they were hanging out and there seven households came. Um, just to, And a couple people couldn't come because they already had plans, but they wanted to. So they were so excited to just come and know their neighbors and hang out. And we watched a movie in the front yard. And it was so awesome just to be able to meet people that, you know, you drive by and you say hi because you know they live on your street. But you don't really know them, you know. And so we had a friends of our family come over that were Christians too. We had a couple Matthews there, you know, just in case something happened. Um, and that, you know, we didn't really talk about church just very lightly. We kind of just wanted to put our foot in the door and, and get it started. But it just really was amazing to see how excited people were just to come out and, and talk and be friendly. And they're like, thank you so much. And this is so great. And so it, it definitely was a blessing that we didn't think was going to happen because of the whole thing with his parents on Thursday. So. I'm going to keep saying it, my friends. See what God does in your obedience. See what he does. He, he's ready to do all that you can imagine and more. But we got to do it. we got to put one foot in front of the other. And so that's a praise to God. I mean, that, that's it. That's living it out. We will be known as something in our community. So what will you be known as? Let's pray, church. Father, first of all, we want to acknowledge and thank you for the work that you did through Jerry and Audrey with um, Jerry's mother and his, and his father. God, to be able to pray for the very first time in his entire life with his dad in that moment and to see him receive and even shed a tear in that moment, God, that's your work. That's your work. Thank you for their, their faithfulness and, and, and boldness, God, to, to do that. I'm sure that was not super comfortable, but they did it. And God, for the testimony of community, how powerful community is, Lord. We're reminded that you call us to live together. And even unbelievers, they know it, they understand it, they desire it. And so help each of us to be community builders, spiritual influencers, to stay the course. 
God, we praise you for this word this morning. Your word. Help us to love sacrificially and selflessly. Not only to one another, God, as a, as a testimony to who you are, but Lord, to all those that we may come in contact with. We praise you, Christ. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.